Yeah, as I said earlier, we've been away and we we're very grateful to God that we had time as a family to get away and spend time together. Um, it really did feel, in many ways, like a, a mini sabbatical, just uh, spending time together as a family and switching off phones and uh, just doing non-church stuff <laughs> for three weeks. It was amazing. <laughs> and Jules is looking forward to that. But... Um, but even while we were away and I turned off social media and I wasn't following social media really, um, there was one thing that I kept seeing when I went online. And obviously as a church, we had Jonathan Conrath uh, come and visit us as a church and have meetings. And uh, it was incredible to see, actually. I just kept getting these Facebook reports of the meetings and what was going on. And Part of me, while I would never, ever, ever swap what we had with my family, I was like, there's something going on in these meetings that felt monumental. I don't know if you felt that as well, but when you see Facebook posts like hundreds of people coming forward for salvation, or people being healed and, and delivered and set free, there's something, you go, there's something happening here which is quite big. And uh, I wasn't here to experience that. And... Uh, I really felt like at that moment for me that there's something about this thing of a, a fivefold evangelist with a healing gift coming into the life of the church. And you get this thing of someone who, who has a, he's an evangelist and that's his gifting and he comes in and he, he preaches and, and people get saved. And I suppose that was the whole point of taking unsaved people there to hear him, hear him preach because there is an anointing on him to preach the good news and to preach the gospel. And... Uh, Often people say, well, what is the point of 412, and why do we always have it, and why are we always pushing it, and this and that, but it's to expose us to these gifts. Actually, I mean, we think of the conference now coming up in a few weeks, I can't believe it, but we will be exposed to apostolic voices from all over the world. And it's incredible time, incredible input, and for me, Jonathan is one of those gifts, and uh, I came back going, oh, God, I, 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 we had a meeting on Tuesday, and Russell Frazier was saying it's... He's never seen anything like this in 40 years of being a Christian. That's Russell Frazier. He's been a Christian longer than I've really been alive. In fact, a few of you have been Christians longer than I've been alive. <laughs> but, um, no, just these reports of, I heard one report of someone who'd broken their arm or something that, a day before that day, and their, their arm miraculously healed in a meeting. It's crazy, but Jesus. And then just people delivered hundreds of salvations. And I, I honestly, when I got back, I was like, I feel like maybe I've missed something. I think Hike and I had even said, like, oh, but like we've missed something. Like, wouldn't have traded it for anything, but like, you get back and you go, oh, what I would have done to have been there. And uh, we got back on the Sunday and the Monday, I was kind of recovering. And on Tuesday, we had an elders meeting and Jonathan was going to be there. And I was like, well, now I get a chance. And uh, most of the elders' meeting was just announcements and admin. <laughs> I was like, what's this all about? Where's the power? And uh, Jonathan had um, he'd actually lost his voice from speaking so much. And he gets quite passionate on stage. And he got up and said, I, I need to preserve my voice. and I'm not going to speak very loudly. And he didn't. And he, he actually just went through with a bunch of the elders what it means to present the gospel and what it looks like, and what is at stake when you present the gospel in a meeting. And it was awesome. And uh, I was very, very thankful to be there. I, 
I was in tears most of the time just because he was telling stories of people getting saved. And there's something about that thing of, of hearing stories of salvation where people are lost and then they're found. And um, he's a fantastic storyteller. And uh, when I got to Cape Town, I felt like maybe I'd missed the gift that was Jonathan, but I, I hadn't missed the gift giver, who's Jesus. And I know for many of us, there was a bit of a confusion around tickets and booking and getting there, and I know a lot of us didn't get there. That doesn't mean that tonight we can't experience what happened at those meetings, because Jesus is the one who heals and sets free. And uh, I think there's something of carrying that thing on. I just don't want, I don't want him to come in here and go, well, that was the evangelist. He did the work that he was supposed to do, but now we're just going to carry on with the scheduled programming. And actually, we're all called to evangelism. We're all called to pray for one another and to ask Jesus to heal people and set people free. So, let me get into my sermon. Um, while I was away and, and watching what was happening on Facebook, um, I had a scripture that came to mind, and uh, it's incredible this thing that happens, but when you read scripture, you remember it. And uh, someone once said to me, how can this Holy Spirit remind you of scripture unless you're in it and you're reading it? And it is true. And uh, while I was in Italy, <laughs> I had this scripture come to mind and I, when, when I saw what was happening on Facebook. It says that Matthew 11, 1 to 6, it said, after Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in their cities. And I'd never seen that before. It says, teach and preach in their cities, in the disciples' cities. It says, meanwhile, John heard in prison about the works of Christ, and he sent his disciples to ask him, who are you the one who was to come, or should we look for someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you have heard but you hear and see, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. It's this incredible passage of scripture where, where John is asking Jesus. John, I love it because it's John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who, uh, one of my favorite passages of scriptures is, in the year of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John in the desert or in the wilderness. It's this man whose whole life has prepared himself for the coming of the Messiah, and the, the word comes to him. And what did he do? He doesn't go, well, I've received the personal revelation from Christ. He's like, no, this is the Messiah. He's coming. I need to now preach um, a baptism of repentance. And he goes into all of Israel preaching this baptism of repentance with boldness and confidence. In fact, he says to the, to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, these religious men. And so Jesus is writing this letter to John, who's now sitting in prison. And he hears about the works of Christ. And reports get back to him of these incredible miracles that are happening. And you have to think that maybe because he, he came professing and pronouncing this, this coming of the Messiah, but now he's sitting in prison and there's doubts that are flooding his mind. And so he sends his disciples to ask the Messiah. This man who, who had said in 1 John 27, here is the one who, he's the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, and he's asking, are you the one who was to come? It 
Jesus replies, not with a rebuke or a correction. And in fact, Jesus could just say, yes. But he doesn't. He replies by, by quoting Old Testament passages from Isaiah about fulfilling the scriptures. And it's a reminder to all of us that even in our doubt, Christ is quick to reassure us. He's loving and kind and gentle and slow to anger. And so he quotes Isaiah 35, 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And he, he quotes Isaiah 61, 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And you might recognize that passage, but it's the same passage that Jesus quotes when he goes into the synagogue. And after he's read it, he says this, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it's a powerful passage of scripture. And there's two things that while I was away, and uh, just thinking through this thing of Jonathan Conrath, and it, it just struck me as I was reading this passage again. And the title of my sermon is John, Jonathan, and Jesus. I do love a good alliteration. <laughs> but John, Jonathan, and Jesus. And while I was reading this passage in the light of what I'd seen online around Jonathan Conrath and what I've experienced seeing him and, and, and witnessing as he spoke to us as elders in real life, two things stood out to me. Conviction and commission. In other words, do we believe Jesus when he says who he was? Do we believe who he says he was? And do we believe that he will do what he did and what he said he would do? This thing of conviction, there was a, a time in John the Baptist's life where he was consumed and convinced and convicted that the message he was delivered, that he was to deliver, sorry, I haven't preached for a while, just bear with me. There was a time in John's I'm not going to read my notes because I get confused. There was a time when John the Baptist was so consumed with the message of what he had been given by God to preach to, to the Jewish nation. And he was unafraid of the consequences and he boldly proclaims this baptism of repentance. In fact, Jesus says, Behold, I, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before me. And so John comes convinced of this message that he's heard. He's got this conviction inside of him. And we read in Scripture these things like, the language of Scripture is always this, persuaded, confident, sure, steadfast, immovable, convinced of Christ and the gospel. In fact, the only time the Bible says be confident is when it's around Christ. And the only time it says don't be confident is around the flesh. Have no confidence in the flesh. Have all confidence in Christ. We think of passages like Romans 8 to 8. I, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Convinced. Conviction. A steadfast person knows what he believes and he cannot be tossed to and fro by the waves of false doctrine that come against him. I love this, I read this. Conviction holds us 
in its grip. And I do believe that conviction demands action. And while listening to Jonathan Conrath just share for a short time with us as elders, I was so struck by his unshakable belief and confidence in the gospel message that he's so driven to action to go around the world preaching this message, knowing that it's the truth and it will bear fruit. He's convinced. And I had to ask myself, is this my conviction? And maybe we can all ask ourselves that question, is that our conviction? Are we convinced that Christ is the only answer for a world that is dying? And what does that conviction do to us? Jonathan was talking about how he delivers the gospel, and he said often what he'll do is he'll, he'll stand before a crowd, and this is a man who has led thousands of, hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. I mean, the numbers he was throwing out, I think in one meeting, I don't know, 5,000 people got saved? But he says he'll stand in front of a crowd and look above them, And on one side he sees hell, an eternal condemnation and damnation away from Christ. And on the other side he sees heaven, eternal life with Christ, peace, joy. In the middle he sees the cross. And at that moment he will do anything to try and persuade that person that they need to run from that and run to that through the work of Christ on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. (laughs) I love that passage. Do we know the fear of the Lord? What is Paul saying? He's saying that knowing that one day Christ will return, and knowing that one day there will be a judgment, And knowing that that is a fearful occasion in the life of every single person, we do everything to persuade people to come to Christ. But I don't think you can convince someone of something unless you yourself are convinced. I think a conviction that Christ is the answer and the only way and everything and there's nothing else but Him will drive something inside of you to see souls saved. So my question is, is that your conviction? Richard Baxter, a famous Puritan writer, said this, Still thinking I had little time to live, my fervent heart to wins men's souls did strive. I preached as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. We often hear the passage in a I read it again this week. Today is the day of salvation. How often have we heard that? Today is the day of salvation. Well, what if today is the day of your salvation? What if there's no guarantee for tomorrow? That is sobering. You see, we we go on and we we say, "Well, well, they didn't get saved this time, it's fine. Or I'll do it next week. Maybe I'll present the gospel when it suits me better. And we don't know. <laughs> so it's getting a bit hectic. But I mean, there's eternal consequences to how we present the gospel and when we present the gospel. Well, 
perhaps that is your conviction. Perhaps your conviction is to, to, to see people saved and to know that Christ is the only answer. Perhaps you are completely persuaded, confident, sure, steadfast, immovable, and convinced of Christ and the gospel. Maybe that does describe you, and I rejoice in that. Or perhaps you were once convinced of this truth. But you, like John, are started to doubt, and we see in this passage, John is faltering in some sense. Circumstance and tribulation have perhaps weakened his faith. And perhaps you are doubting, or perhaps you're not convinced. Perhaps if I asked you that question, your honest answer would be, I don't know if I am completely convinced. Maybe you've lost sight of Christ or have grown cold. And like John, I would encourage you to ask, are you the one who was to come? And he will answer you. I love the thought that once John had received this message from his disciples, he was so built up and encouraged in his faith again that he knew that the Messiah had come. Imagine the great joy of John the Baptist sitting in prison, soon to be beheaded, knowing that he had heralded the coming of the Christ. <laughs> I'm sure he had a fresh boldness and a strength of conviction. He is the one who has come. You're all very quiet. I'm a bit worried. Are you all with me still? <laughs> and then secondly, commission. So what do we do when we have this, this conviction that Christ is the one true answer, which he is? He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no relativism in that answer at all. Culture would have us believe that everything is relative. There's many ways to God. Yours is just one of them. That's why the, that's why the gospel is so offensive. We, we actually, we went to the Colosseum when we were in Rome. Fascinating and depressing place. Hundreds of thousands of Christians were killed there. And so you stand in this place where your fellow brothers and sisters, martyrs for the faith, have died. And the tour guide says, the only reason they died, the only reason they died, was because they told Rome, who was a, a polytheistic society, that there was one God, and only one God, and he was the truth. That is why they died. There was no other reason. They didn't do anything wrong other than they said, Christ is the one God, and he is the truth. Slaughtered in their hundreds. Conviction. <laughs> You put it in a Colosseum with a lion, you're going, denounce your faith. No. And a whole bunch of other stuff that they did there. Conviction. Convinced. Absolutely convinced that the gospel is the truth. I hope you've heard the right gospel. And I hope it's changed your heart so much that you're so convinced that nothing will ever persuade you otherwise. And I hope that you weren't saved and convinced then, but now you're going, well, I've kind of, it is what it is. No, it's the same gospel. If, it, if you were on fire and convinced, then you're not now. Please, stir up your heart. 
I pray this stirs you up to something of, no, this is the truth. This is the gospel. What am I called to? I'm called to Christ. And then this week, thinking of Jonathan, my thoughts went to the other part of this passage. The works of Christ. And our commission and our involvement in that. The scripture says this, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And as God does, when we got back, I was listening to a song in the car, and these words just... It's caught my attention. It's a song I've listened to a hundred times before. It says, In these days barren fields will sprout trees. The deaf and blind will hear and see. The dead will raise and begin to breathe. The sons of God declare to be his full and glorious family, the beautiful, perfect bride of thee. The deaf and blind will hear and see. The dead will raise and begin to breathe. And it ties into our passage, right, all this, the testimonies and what we were seeing when, when Jonathan and his meetings were happening, these amazing miracles that were happening. I hope we never lose our wonder of what God can do. <laughs> we can become, as Christians, I think we can become a little bit like, oh, well, you got, cool, you got healed. Thank you, Jesus. You see, what happened here is what Isaiah prophesied, what the Messiah did, and what John heard. Think about that. What this passage is saying. Isaiah prophesied the coming Messiah and the signs and wonders that would accompany him. Christ comes and he performs those signs and wonders. And John hears about it. And we hear about it. And so there's this string from the Old Testament to the last from Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets, to the, to the, last, New Test, the, old, the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. And then Jesus comes and said, this is, this is fulfilled. I hope when we hear stories like this, our faith is healed, uh, is, is, is stirred. I'm sure John's faith was stirred when he heard the stories and and Christ confirmed who he was. And then maybe we say, well, can only certain people heal people? Maybe Jonathan has got a gift of healing. He really does. And maybe let's just leave the evangelism to the evangelist and the healing to the one with gifts of healing. Because after all, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, uh, to another gifts of healing by that one spirit and to another working of miracles. Well, I do believe Jonathan does have a gift of healing. But I don't believe people are only healed when he prays for them. Because many stories have come out from this time of people being spontaneously healed without anyone praying for them, which is awesome. Because it's not a man who's doing the healing, it's God. In fact, Peter says this, he says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this and why do you stare at us as though it's our own power or piety? 
that he's done these miracles. And so I believe that if we are convinced that Jesus is who he says he is or who he says he was, and the Bible clearly speaks about miracles and healings, and we as his followers have a commission. Luke 9, 1 says this, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure, and to cure diseases. Who has a gift of healing here? Sure. But there is a gift which is mentioned in, in the list of gifting. Yeah. So put your hand up. Can I see? I'm not trying to shame anyone. I'm just, I'm just asking out of curiosity. Okay, awesome. Okay. <laughs> okay, it's going to pray for everyone tonight. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> because tonight I do want to pray for people. I don't want to just preach about Jesus coming and healing people. And then we go, well, that was a cool sermon. Hey, it's awesome. No, I believe that Jesus does heal people. And that we can pray for people to be healed. And I, 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 I want us to pray tonight about that. So, ready your hearts for that, because it's going to happen. I'm just going to finish my sermon quickly. <laughs> you see, while it's amazing to see miracles, and it's amazing to see creative miracles and things happening where Jesus is healing people from sicknesses. Actually, the greatest miracle is the salvation of souls. And Jonathan has said the same thing. He's like, it's wonderful to see people healed, but it's, it's even better to see people saved. And I love this because Jesus emphasizes it in this passage. He says this, go back and report to John what you have heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And then he ends with what? And the good news is preached to the poor. We are called to pray for people, but first we are called to the Great Commission. I love, I love hearing testimonies, and I was saying earlier when, when Jonathan was talking, I was a little bit teary just listening to him. But it wasn't because of the miracles I was telling me about, about the healing miracles. It was about the fact that people were getting saved. Actually, that, that, that was the, the biggest thing. He was telling these incredible stories of people coming to salvation. And so, church, I would ask again, are we so convinced that Jesus is the only answer? Are we so gripped by our convictions that we are called to pray for the sick and to fulfill the Great Commission? My prayer for us as a church is that we would be so convicted and convinced that we would rush out of here to fulfill the Great Commission. Because I believe that what Christ is, I do believe for us as a church, for a season, that we are called to a season of evangelism. <laughs> the evangelists get excited, everyone else is like, oh, I don't know, Bri. are you sure you heard God on that one? <laughs> so if it's called uh, but I really, I really do think that. I think we, we, are, we, are, called, um, we are called to, to go out of where we're at and to actually bring the lost into it and see people saved. Just as we saw with Keith and Jean today, the first fruits of that, hopefully. Hmm. 
Ja. Ja. So, so let me put my laptop away because we're going to pray for people now. <laughs> but I, I, I do. Uh, firstly, let me say this. I was challenged by Jonathan and what he said is uh, we, have to be, we have to be sharing the gospel every week as a church. Can I say this to you, that my commitment to you as the lead elder of this church is that we will throw out the net every Sunday without fail. And that if you bring people to church, you will know that they will hear the gospel and they will hear the whole gospel and they will have an opportunity to respond to that gospel. I never want us to be a church where, well, we just maybe, and, and sometimes it does happen, but I don't want it to be a place where we just, we preach the word and we have good worship and then we forget actually why we're here. Because, can I tell you this? Jonathan made a salvation call to a room full of lead elders. <laughs> Everyone's like, did anyone put their hand up? No, but because you never know. We've been at leaders' camps. The salvation call has gone out and people have got saved. Like, this is a leaders' camp. <laughs> Praise God you got saved. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, better now. But he said, he said that every opportunity, he'll take every opportunity. Because you don't know. And today is the day of salvation. 